It is uh, good to be with you. Uh, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles uh, to the Gospel according to Galatians, which is the way I hear Ken introduce it for the past couple weeks, so I was just going to follow suit. No, turn, in the, um, turn to the, uh, the letter of the, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, and today we'll be looking at verses 21 through 31. And I want to invite you to not just open it at the beginning, but keep it open because the idea of expository preaching is that what I say, you see within the text, right? And so, if, so you need your Bibles open to, uh, to discern whether or not what I'm saying is in agreement with God's Word. Um, because his word, his word is infallible and without error. Um, people who stand up here are not. Um, and so you need to discern for yourselves. And so I pray that you will do that uh, this morning. I'm going to read the text and then... As is custom, uh, take a moment and uh, just ask you to silently um, meditate on this text and ask God to fill you with that discernment and to, um, and to take his word and to write it on our hearts this morning. So let me read the text and then we'll have that time of meditation and then we will walk through this together. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's take a moment and pray. So, Father, we pray that over these next moments, you would take your word and you would write it upon our hearts. And in so doing, would we leave, having been transformed more to the likeness of Jesus, because of the grace and power of your word to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul wrote this letter with the hope and confidence that he might put a stop to what he had heard was going on amongst the churches in this region of Galatia, which were filled with 
people that he knew, people that he cared for, people that he had spent time with, and people that were being duped by these Judaizers who had come in. We're trying to convince them that in order for you to be in right relationship with God, you had to, yes, believe in God, believe in Jesus, but also do some other things. Observe certain customs, observe certain traditions. Which was different than what Paul had proclaimed. Because what Paul had come into this region proclaiming was was a gospel that said, hey, it's faith and faith alone. Nothing but faith that makes you sons and daughters. It is faith and faith alone that makes you royalty, as Ken taught last week. It is faith and faith alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, strictly speaking, is his birth, life, death, ascension, resurrection, and promised return. That's what it is to be a believer in Jesus. When you believe into him, then his life becomes yours. His death, your death. His resurrection, your resurrection. His ascension proof that God has accepted his sacrifice, that, 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 that the wrath that our sin merited has been absorbed. And now we wait for Jesus to come back. That is the good news. And that is what Paul traveled around proclaiming. And it's in believing in that that, that frees us from slavery to sin. It frees us from having to be righteous on our own, by our own merit. And that's what these Judaizers were traveling around trying to say. They were proclaiming this this different gospel that was going to actually take these people who were free and once again make them slaves by adopting this this Jesus plus kind of mentality. And Paul's in agony over this, right? This section of text 21 through 31 can sometimes feel like it's a bit bit stale, a bit black and white, a bit bit theologically heavy. But, But if you look at the two verses prior to that, right? Paul says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Like, do you see Paul's heart? Paul is not just dumping out these, these verses of, of theological discourse on them. It's a man who is concerned for the people that he loved because he knew what was at stake. He knew that their freedom so it was hanging in the balance. And he knew that it was possible to to look free on the outside and yet inside be anything but that. To appear to be free and yet inwardly be enslaved. In 1965, the U.S. entered the Vietnam War. And over the next years, there were over 50,000 people killed, 700, over 700 taken prisoner. And, and several decades later, this magazine ran the picture of these three men who were held captive and who are now back in the United States, standing in front of the Vietnam Memorial. And, and these three men had this conversation, and one asked another, have you forgiven your captors yet? To which the second man said, no, never. And the third friend turned and said, seems like they still have you in prison, don't they? See, outwardly, this man was free. He was standing in Washington, D.C. in front of this thing, but, but inwardly, he was still enslaved. And that potential exists within us spiritually to appear outwardly free and yet be inwardly enslaved. So what Paul does is is, he's writing this in these verses specifically to to highlight that problem and that distinction. And so he's he's leveling this argument in chapters three and four of this theological argument that are coming at it from a variety of angles. And the final section before, before this hinge happens at the beginning of chapter five 
is what one scholar says is the, the death nail of Judaism. Because what Paul does is he takes the Judaizers' own argument and kind of flips it on its head and uses it against them. And so in these verses, we're going to see three things. First, in verse 21 through 23, we'll see the argument. And then in 24 through 27, the allegory. And finally, in 28 through 31, the application. But as I was studying this text, it occurred to me that sometimes this is the exact kind of text that it's easy to kind of tune out. Right? Because you're reading this, and there are these Old Testament quotes and allusions. And and I think it's easy to, to read this and be like, you know, yeah, this doesn't really have much to do with me. So I'll sit here, listen to a couple bits of trivia, and get on with my Sunday. So if you'll allow me, I want to kind of front load the application for a moment. Because I think this text does matter to all of us. Not just to the people that Paul was writing to in this day. Not just to people that, that maybe don't know much Bible. It matters to all of us. And it's a word that you and I need to hear because it's possible for you and I to live enslaved. Maybe not by Old Testament laws. You might be too smart, too aware to allow that to be the thing that enslaves you. Because, I mean, after all, we are Americans, right? I mean, we, 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 there's maybe lots of things that we could fall victim to, but, hey, we're smart enough to avoid this, this Old Testament type of encumbersome. But you know what? I think there's different things that can enslave us. Different things that we look to and point to as, as examples or, or proof of our righteousness. And, and things that we stop and, th- if we're really honest with ourselves... As much as we say, yeah, Jesus and Jesus alone, we take comfort in some other things and point to some other things, maybe just inwardly as signs of us being good with God. Some of those things that we can be enslaved by, those those false forms of righteousness, like work ethic righteousness. Hey, I'm a hard worker and God loves people that work. He loves people that work hard. So God and I are good. Or theological righteousness. Hey, I believe all of the right things. I subscribe to all the important doctrines, which means that God and I are good, right? Because all the people that are messed up, yeah, God tolerates them, but we're good. Or intellectual righteousness. God loves me. He, he approves of me because I'm, I'm smart. And yeah, I use my brain for the glory of God, but, but at the end of the day, there's an element of, of me applying my intellect that, that lets me know that God and I are good. Or legalistic righteousness. I avoid all those bad things, those evil things. I don't get drunk. I don't, like, I'm, I don't watch anything other than like PG or G or TV 14 stuff. Like, so I'm, I keep myself pure. And so therefore, I, like, God and I are good. There's lots of those different forms of righteousness. These things that I think do begin to creep into our thinking when, when it comes to considering why are we good with God? What makes us right standing before him? And as you think of, why does God approve of you? Why is it that he welcomes you into his presence? If, if there's anything else that enters that equation besides Jesus, whether it's right theology, whether it's morality, whether it's intellectual, what's your work ethic, whether it's the fact that you're an Aggie or a Texan or a Cowboys fan, whatever it might be that, that factors into that thinking, there's an element of enslavement that comes with that. And that's why Paul wrote these verses to help refute. Not just for the Galatians, but also for us. And so that's, that's the question for us this morning. 
said, have you ever considered what is it that, that is enslaving you? Or maybe what is, the, what is the most potential to enslave you? Maybe there is nothing right now, but I mean, if you are someone for whom that, that, that Romans 7 war of sin goes on, you'd be, you'd be arrogant to say, hey, there's not even a possibility that I could ever stumble into anything that would be enslaving or entrapment like Paul's talking about here. So what has the potential? Oftentimes we're the most blind to our own selves. And so maybe that's a question you need to ask someone that you trust. Hey, out of all the possibilities of things that might enslave me, that, that I might look to for my sense of worth or approval in the sight of God, like what are some things that you see in my life that could be those things? For me at one point, I think it was that I was a graduate of Dallas Seminary. Put in the hard work, right? Dallas Seminary, so they have the, the four-year THM degree, and they have all the other degrees that all of us THMers kind of look down upon others with. Oh, you're not a THM student? Oh, I'm so sorry. You don't even really go to seminary. Right? This, this arrogance, right? At points in my life, it's been my kids. Hey, my kids are doing good. Like None of them are in jail. They all like family still like they're they're good and so God and I are good times I have two adopted sisters from Korea and that element of of, of sacrifice that went into our family to to adopt them when I was a kid and everything that's gone on since then it's an element in which hey yeah God and I are good see like look at all these good things that I do look at all the sacrifice that I make Some very normal, average, everyday things can become enslaving things. If they at all enter into the equation of, like, why does God love you? Why does he approve of you? How can you tell? Emotions are wonderful in this regard. Emotions are a great thing. They're a good thing. God made them. He has them. And yet emotions have a place, and they're not to rule over you. They're not to dictate truth to you, but they're a great indicator as far as what's going on in your heart. And so when you're walking by the person who's sitting on the corner of the street homeless, like what kind of emotions do you experience? Disdain for that person? Disregard for them? Serves you right? You haven't done anything with your life? There's a refugee camp in the town that we live in in Condren. And for the first few months, there were, there were a lot of people that were displaced, not just from Ukraine, but from Northern Africa that were wandering around our small town. And I caught myself having those, those thoughts, those self-righteous thoughts. The fact that I wasn't a refugee, that I'd, that I'd done whatever I'd done with my life as being part of why I was better than them. When you hear of someone who's a friend, right, who stole money from someone else. Sympathy? Empathy? When you hear of somebody's marriage who dissolved, what kind of emotions do you experience? When, when, you, when you see a mom and da- or dad in a yelling match with a kid while you walk by with your perfectly well-mannered children, like, what, do you, what do you feel? What do you experience? What is the biggest potential to enslave you? The argument, the allegory, and the application. So what's his argument? Look at verse 21. 
Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So Paul's specifically addressing those people who, who desire, who want to be under the law, which doesn't mean that they desire to obey the law. It means that they are people who want to rely upon the law, that they want to see that as the means by which they are in right standing with God. People who would say all the right things about God, right? Who would stand, like they'd sit next to you and worship Jesus and, and great, have great passion. But, but deep down, there's this insecurity about where they are with God that is only fixed by the things that they do. That they only feel better about them and God when they do certain things, when they go to church a certain amount of times, when they have their, their finances in a certain order, right? So they're looking for these parts of their life, their evidence, the, the, the families, their marriage, their church attendance as, as means by which they can feel good about how God and them are doing. Yeah, they worship Jesus, but they, they rely on other things for that feeling of approval. So Paul asks them a question that's very similar to the question that he asks at the end in verse 30. Are you hearing the law? Are you listening to God's words? Listening and hearing means more than just the the physical activity, right? It means are are you internalizing it? Are you digesting it? Are you understanding it? And so Paul's arguing that that if, if they really listened, not just the physical activity, but like ingested in their heart, if they really listened, then they wouldn't believe what these Judaizers were saying. So he's about to take the word now and and, and use it to refute the Judaizers. And the beauty of it is is how he turns their own arguments against them. Look at verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So verse 22 begins with a phrase that you've probably seen before, right? It is written, which is typically kind of the setup for, for a quote of some sort. And yet... What happens is Paul basically kind of gives us a bit of a, of a summary or, or paraphrase of events that have gone on in Genesis 15 to 21, right? Where we read this, this series of events between Abraham and Sarah that, that Paul calls the free woman and Sarah's servant Hagar, who's the slave woman, right? A section of the Old Testament that was going to be very familiar to these Judaizers especially that was probably even used by them in their false teaching. And so he's taking kind of their own text and using it against them. But since we may not know it quite as well, give me just a few minutes and let me kind of run through this story to make sure that everyone understands the basis of his argument. In Genesis 15, 1 through 6, God's given Abraham this vision by which Abraham responds by kind of throwing a bit of a, of a pity party because he doesn't have the kids yet like, Abraham, like God promised him back in Genesis 12. All he has is this slave, Eleazar. And so in, chapter, in Genesis 15, 1, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I, I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. For your very own son shall be your heir. He brought them outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. But in Genesis 16, Abraham's, Sarah's faith, it it weakens for a time. So they come up with this, this plan to kind of help God make good on his promise. 
So Sarah gives Hagar, her servant, to Abram so that she can bear him a son. And in Genesis 16, verse 15, it says, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And so when Paul says in Galatians 4.23 that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, it means that he was born out of self-reliance. It means that, that Abraham didn't really wait for God to fulfill his promise. He, he decided to rely upon his own power to help God fulfill his promise. And he used his own ingenuity. And Ishmael was produced. Fast forward 14 years to Genesis 17, when God, tells it to, God says to Abram and his wife, Sarah, that they will have a son, and God is actually going to make good on his promise. He says this in Genesis 17, 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So Abraham's plan to help God out, to fulfill the promise, gets rejected by God. He says, no, I'm going to do it. I promised it and I will do it. In spite of the age thing, he is going to have a son by his wife, Sarah. And sure enough, Genesis 21.1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Isaac was not born according to the flesh because his birth was the result of God's supernatural intervention and and fulfillment of his own promise. And so what we see here, it's it's an important thing of, of what it means to live not enslaved, but free. It's trusting in the promises of God believing that he will do what he has said he will do, even when it seems to defy all logic. To live free means that you do not waver in your trust. You believe that he will do everything that he has promised. So what Paul is setting up in this historical account was familiar to these groups, especially the Judaizers, because there's, there's this great pride in, that they had of like they were sons of Abraham. They had all the right theological knowledge. But ultimately, they, they, they misunderstood they got it wrong because Paul clarifies it for them in verse 24. And he, use, he does that using a word that can make some people a little nervous when it comes to the Bible, the word allegory, right? People see, some people hear that and they're like, oh no, here it comes. But an allegory is simply when something has a meaning beyond its literal meaning. And so in saying that that Abraham and Sarah and the Hagar story is an allegory, Paul isn't saying that it wasn't historically true. He's not saying that it didn't happen the way Moses wrote it. He's not even saying that, he's not saying that like Moses made this up just to prove a point. He's just saying that here is something that, that has some application, that has an illustration, that is something that can be used to help us understand what is going on here. There's plenty of times when when people do this and they get way off track. 
Right? Those sermons about the Red Sea where, where the thought is, what, what's the Red Sea in your life that God wants to part for you? Right? An example of bad allegory, right? If you hear that, run the other way. But honestly, that's not what Paul is doing. And keep in mind, right, what you have here is the inspired holy word of God, right? And so if that is true, this is the, the Holy Spirit breathed word of God, then allegorizing this is a good thing and is a right thing. And what he continues to do in 24, 25, 26, and 27 is, is he draws out some of these, these helpful pictures, these, these representations. First, in verse 24, he focuses on Hagar. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. The women are, these women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So there are some dots that, that Paul is wanting to connect for us in these verses. And first is that, that Hagar giving birth to Ishmael, which was done according to the flesh, as it said in verse 23, is connected to Mount Sinai where the law was given. So there are these dots. So the, the law was meant to be a thing that people looked at and said, I, I can't do that. Right? Because what the law is, the, the law is, 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 is the holiness of God put into words. Right? It's not just some rule book that God came up with to kind of hang over our heads and to beat us to death with. The law is, is God saying, hey, this is my holiness for you in written word. And we were meant to receive the law and be like, I, I fall short of this. As somebody who was made to image the holiness of God, and here's the holiness of God, I can't do it. That's what was meant to happen with the law. And yet what the Israelites did according to Exodus 24, 3, was the very opposite. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so this thing that was meant to say, yeah, we can't do this. People are like, yeah, no problem. We got this. Easy stuff. So Paul's view here is that, that for Christians to submit to the law, is basically submitting to slavery. That's the connection that he's wanting to make. Going back to Mount Sinai. And so Hagar represents Mount Sinai, which is the people's attempt to make themselves right with God. But then he drops the biggest bomb of all in 25. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Guess who the present Jerusalem is? The Judaizers. Right? The people that had come presenting this false gospel, the ones that said, hey, you need to act more Jewish in order to be right with God. That was the group that Paul was saying, hey, guess what? You have totally missed the boat. You've been so focused on who your father is that you haven't asked the other question, who's your mother? The Jews were big on Abraham. But Paul turned this, this bragging right on its head and said, no, no, no. You guys are actually descendants of Hagar. Jews in Jerusalem, present, you guys are actually descendants of Hagar. And for us, like we read that, and we're like, yeah, okay, big deal. But if you're Jewish, and that's what Paul is saying, I mean, like he's, he's saying, hey, you've taken matters into your own hand with this law thing. So you can't claim that whole Abraham, Sarah, Isaac lineage. You're actually Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael. So Paul's saying to the Galatians, don't follow these false teachers because they're not actually teaching you how to be sons of Abraham. They're teaching you how to be sons of Ishmael, a slave, not an heir. 
And then in 26, Paul turns his attention to the other half of the allegory, Sarah and her child Isaac. But he skips over the mention of of the Abrahamic covenant and he gets right to the point. But Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And so you see this contrast with the present Jerusalem in 25 and the Jerusalem above in 26. What's he saying there is that you now, those who have believed into Jesus, who are Christians, who believe in faith and faith alone to make you right before God, you are currently citizens of the Jerusalem above. She is our mother. Sarah represents this city. She's the one who had given, given birth to Isaac, not in reliance upon herself like Hagar with Ishmael and Abraham, but because of an act of God fulfilling his promise, which is where the quote from Isaiah 52 comes in. See, Paul sees a huge difference between Sarah and Hagar. Sarah represents grace. Hagar represents the law. Sarah stands for trusting God alone. Hagar stands for trying to please God through your own efforts. And the sons of the two of them represent those different ways. The way of faith is Isaac. The way of works is Ishmael. Thus you have real people who stand for or point to these spiritual truths. That's what an allegory is. And so when you boil this all down, Paul is saying that Sarah is the line of faith and Hagar is the line of works. And present day Jews living in Jerusalem, you're not not part of that Sarah-Isaac line. You're part of the Hagar-Ishmael line. And so he's given the, the historical piece, right? And now he's unpacked the allegory and now he goes to apply it. And he gives three points of application in 28 through 31. First, being a true son in the line of Isaac means that it is done not by practice, but by promise. Look at verse 28. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at the same time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. So he says, first, for you to be a son of God according to the promise means that you are children's of promise, means that it is promise, it is faith that causes you to be a daughter and son of God. It is not your works. That's not the basis of your standing before God. Second, it means that if you are a children of promise, there's going to be persecution. That's what he said in verse 29. A few years after Isaac was born, Abraham was throwing a party to to celebrate Isaac's weaning. And and you see hints of that that persecution in Genesis 21.9. It says, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian. This is at at the party for Isaac. She saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. See, Paul says that if you are a child of promise, not a child of practice, if you are a child of grace, not a child of the law, then one thing you can guarantee is that there will be persecution because people who rely upon the law, which was the Judaizers here in Paul's day, but it's other people in our day. It's the Muslims in our day. It's legalistic Christians. It's the Catholic Church in Luther's day. People who rely upon the law, rely upon things to justify themselves before God will hate those who rely solely upon grace for salvation. Because in, so, in relying solely upon grace for salvation, you're saying that all of the works don't matter. In other words, your life is not the means of your right standing before God. 
And people love to feel that sense of worth, that sense of value, that things that I do are the reason why God loves me. Because then I have something to do with it. But that's not grace. And when people feel threatened by that, when people feel threatened by by the thought that all of my striving, all of my zeal, all of my knowledge, it doesn't bring me one inch closer to God. Like, like, it doesn't matter what I do. I can't make myself right before God, really. When, when people hear that, they respond in ways that are harsh, in ways that are persecuting. Third, this means that the fight to preserve the purity of the gospel message is worth having. Look at verse 30. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of a slave woman shall not inherit with the son of a free woman. Like that phrase cast out, that doesn't leave a whole lot of doubt to what Paul is saying, right? I mean, unity amongst the bride of Christ is a good thing, but there are, there are limits to that. There are limits to the tolerance of that within a, a bride And when you read Corinthians, it's clear that Paul was willing to to tolerate a lot. But these false teachers had had gone beyond those boundaries. They had transgressed that, that, that line. And what they were advocating was a denial of the gospel itself. And when this kind of heresy invades the church, when this kind of false gospel invades a local expression of the bride of Christ, you can't tolerate it. You have to get it out. Superficial harmony is is fake and is worthless. The slavery of legalism and gospel freedom can't coexist. So Paul concludes, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free one. Children of grace. We were made sons and daughters because there was one who was willing to step into our place and be cast out on our behalf so that we could be brought in. So that we could be declared co-heirs with Christ. The one who is our Savior, the one who is our Lord, the one who is our friend. The one who calls us into union with himself and one another, which is what we're about to celebrate here. It happens because of a promise. It happens because God will do what he says he will do. And that is the basis of our right standing before God. And anybody else who tries to come in and pollute that can't be tolerated. Because to do so pollutes the very thing that is the means by which we call God Father. And he calls us daughters and sons. Let's pray. So, Father, as we... Come to the table, mindful of the body of Christ was broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. Father, we give you all praise and glory for the grace that is ours because of his sacrifice. We thank you, Father, for the mercy that you have poured out on us. That even in the midst of our sin, you did not cast us out and cut us off. But you sent your son who 
absorbed the wrath that our sin deserved. And Father, I pray that you would cause us to to search our hearts and minds and see what elements of, of slavery might exist within us. Father, would you give us humility to even ask others to to enter into that conversation that we might discern what are things that we potentially look at as means of your approval for us or your love for us. Would you give us the grace, Father, to, to weed those things out of our hearts? We would be left with nothing but praise for your grace to us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.